I was accused of tricking you into surplus meditation yesterday. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> I sort of trying a new trick tonight, so I give you an extra long, boring, and abstract <laughs> talk. But then again, you know, I was moved by compassion and decided to <laughs> say something practical about thoughts and what the texts say about how to deal with obstructive thoughts. Uh, this is canonical. I'm not making this up. Just to be clear, I could prove it if, if, if need be. Um, in fact, you find the the master plan for this in the Vitaka Santana Sutta, which is um, Majima 20, middle length things, discourse 20. So if you feel like checking this up, you might do so. Uh, one of the big things about sitting down and uh, closing your eyes is you notice that much of our activity is discursive. Yeah? Most people, if asked what their mind is about, they would say it is about thought. Thinking is what we most highly and most often identify with as the activity of mind that seems to be, uh, you know, in the worst case, it's it's basically us, yeah? What it thinks, this is us. And since you don't really have any control over your thoughts, not really in a big way, it means uh, not just do you have a self that truly you don't have, but actually that self is highly out of range, it's highly out you know, out of order, you know, because it thinks just whatever it wants. And whatever it likes to go and think of, this is what you are. Yeah? Now, in my books, this is a, this is a bad case. Yeah? This is a really bad case. You have a self, and it just does what it wants. It's not even solid. It's not even reliably making you happy. But it just drags you around. So, obviously, contemplative traditions of all brands have had a certain suspicion about the value of conceptual thought. In other words, basically what you think who you are, what you think you need to do, what you think you're missing, what you think has been, you've been done out of, uh, what you think you should have already understood, all these kind of things. The short version of this generally is called me. Yeah. Um, so Buddhist uh, teachings, contemplative psychology have always held the credibility of what we think about ourselves and about the world in some, under some suspicion. Thought is known to be fleeting. It is known to be inaccurate. Um, the parts of thought that are logically infallible and provable only pertain to a rather small sliver of human experience. Um, and many of those thoughts, I'm sorry if this is insulting, are not highly original. You know? Many of them are lukewarm or endlessly warmed up, repeated, um, and kind of babbled. You know, much of our thought is babble. I don't know what yours is like, but I can tell you, if yours is anything like mine, then much of it is babble. You know, it just babbles. Um, psychology acknowledges that the, the mere use of our senses is in some way gratifying, even if the objects of our senses are not intrinsically gratifying, that the use of our senses is gratifying. 
minimally so. Most of us have more going of sensory experience than that absolute minimum, so we don't generally acknowledge that minimum. But if you deprive your senses for some reason, uh, this is an interesting exercise, not reading, not sleeping, not seeing. Um, Many such deprivation exercises are highly uh, instructive exercises because they are making us aware of what we actually want. And as long as we get what we want, we generally have a less clear of a sense what we want than when we don't get what we want. So any such deprivation exercise as an intervention technique, not as a lifestyle, um, is quite instructive of what our needs are and what our comforts are and what our wants are. So I recommend topical fasting, I recommend media diets. I recommend uh, keeping silent with people who you're close to for you know, a day or a weekend. Or doing things like that is very, very interesting. Whenever we do such a thing, for example, when you ask not to read uh, on retreats, you, know, you may notice that actually you do want to read. At some point, not just a book you have kind of tucked away in your rucksack or in your bag, but you, you suddenly find yourself grasping the, you know, sitting on the toilet, grasping the cleaning agent and greedily reading the label. Yeah. I found myself doing this. There was a time as a young monk when I was <coughs> on retreat and I lived in a little hut and made fire. I could only ever take the financial time of the newspaper to make fire because everything else was too threatening that I would fall prey to reading. Yeah. So I generally had the, uh, what are they called, the, not the currency exchange, the stock exchange, basically. <laughs> that was safe, basically. That, not even that, you know, I failed on that one, actually, on a couple of accounts. So there is something in us that wants to be stimulated, even if the available stimulation is, you know, is petty, uh, or is you know is, is is dreadfully below our standards. Still, we want to be stimulated, yeah? simply because we feel more alive. And thought, for that matter, sometimes is you know a lot below our standards, and yet we keep you know hashing thoughts out. We keep babbling on about things in our lives, commenting, criticizing sometimes appreciating, arguing, disagreeing, disproving, uh, all kinds of patterns in which we verbally respond, sort of a running commentary on the universe. A sort of low-level, let's call it logoria, yeah? producing verbal diarrhea on the nature of experience. Ever been there? Yeah. Sitting in a train, watching out of the window, hoping that dreadful commentator would stop. Just stop. Just let the guy shut up. You know. I see a tree, I don't need to hear that I see a tree. Yeah. You know, it's just... So... Um, as if the kind of mind in an almost magical way grasps at things by giving them names, in a sort of childish naming uh, fib. Yeah, the kind of pattern of trying to make itself 
order the world by naming things. Yeah. This is me, this is you, this is a house, this is mine, this shouldn't, this is, this is good, this is bad, this shouldn't. Yeah. If not, then you're to be blessed. I think you're to be congratulated if you don't know this, if this is just my personal um, diagnosis. Um, hat tip, yeah. Um, if you do recognize this, then the following may be of use. It also occurs to meditators. Sometimes um, it seems that some of the thinking in our mind, you know, is discernible for greed or for hatred or confusion, anxiety. But sometimes nothing of that overt power of these emotions uh, or mind states is discernible. It just kind of keeps babbling for no overt reason, no overt gratification, no overt purpose. It just keeps kind of babbling on. Yeah. Some minds do more verbal babbling. Some minds just play melodies. Yeah. I, I had a melody mind, a very bad melody mind. I've been overdosing on music for the first part of my adult life, you know, systematically. And um, I remember sitting on a little rivulet on retreat, in my first six-week on solitary retreat. It was a beautiful hot summer. And I was outdoors every day and sitting there at that river. And that poor little river turned into, you know, violin. Uh, it turned into gamelan orchestras. It turned into lonely saxophones. It turned into just about every conceivable instrument and every conceivable melody. My mind could not let that little rivulet murmur on on its own. It would keep turning this sound of a little rivulet running down a beautiful afternoon, it would keep turning this into some resemblance of music. Yeah. And it was grotesquely varied in this. Yeah. And yet it would keep doing this. Uh, I don't dare admitting for how long, really. You know. it, was, it baffled me. The sheer extent of this madness baffled me because I knew this was a rivulet. I knew this was not a gamelan orchestra. I knew this was not a Bartok string quartet. I knew this was not a lonely saxophone. I knew this was not Charlie Mingus in there. It was a little rivulet, yeah. And yet it sang, it blew, it harped, it drummed, it, yeah. And it was clear my mind was seeking this. There's something in my mind seeking to entertain itself with the, you know, that immense, impoverished version of sound that little rival, river, rivulet was giving off and turning this somehow into something I could get my teeth in. Yeah. It wasn't just stuff I liked. That was the bad bit. You know? It was also stuff I didn't like. It was stuff I overtly hated. You know? There are things you really don't want to be seen listening to. Yeah? And just, you know, if you come from where I come from, this stuff you... You can't keep your head up when you're found listening to such stuff. Yeah. And I've heard such stuff when I was sitting there. So it wasn't just pleasant. It wasn't just, you know, that mind making nice things out of whatever it found. It was, um, you could imagine how despairing that mind was if it actually preferred to uh, produce stuff that I, you know, positively hated, yeah, that I found disgusting. You know, it was an insult to my taste. It was an insult to my musical education and everything, and yet there it was, you know, 
tiddling on in my head. While I was ostensibly meditating, yeah, sitting there with a straight back and trying to look serene and uh, listening to unspeakable trivia. So, minds do strange things. And, you know, we're taught that mindfulness is basically sitting here and non-judgmentally let things arise and let things subside and uh, hope for the better. Uh, this is true. This is a very important strategy. I do not want to deny this. I, in fact, I suggest that we do that. Um, it is right uh, there in the scriptures. It is a suggestion. Uh, it is a time-honed practice to take the freedom to let things arise and non-interfere and wait till the uh, hallmark of uh, impermanence uh, manifests and uh, shows the, the disappearance of what has arisen, this is a very powerful way of dealing with things. You know, when you're taught to fix things and repair things and help things and proactively go into things, and then this particular strategy of sitting back, let things arise and let things cease and don't interfere and don't judge is a powerful technique. But there are many more techniques. Yeah? So not all of meditation consists of sitting back and being basically subject, subject to what arises and wait till it uh, deigns to cease. Yeah. So we're sometimes encouraged to actually do things. Meditation consists not just of watching things arise and cease, but uh, we're encouraged also to engage with things in a different, in a number of ways. Yeah. This is somewhat less known. Um, these uh, strategies I'm about to speak of are part of that lesser-known approach, also a meditative approach, and also concerned with mindfulness, but not in a simply passively receiving, watching sort of mode, but uh, more in a meeting, engaging with mode. So, Meditation is maybe more active than some of you would uh, have heard or would have listened to as it is sometimes depicted here in the West. Uh, the scriptures actually speak uh, quite a bit of qualities like um, arduousness and energy and meeting, even, even fighting, um, transforming, uh, stopping. One very elegant uh, term is to take something to non-becoming. Yeah? This is a very polite way of saying to put an end to it. Yeah? Take something to non-becoming, isn't it? This is, it's almost a 21st century euphemism. Yeah? Taking to non-becoming is a very skilled tool to kind of gradually lead something into non-existence. Yeah? It's an elegant way of saying you stop feeding something and you... Um, gently bring something to the point where it subsides. So our tools come from uh, the scriptures, and basically there are five ways of dealing with thoughts. Now, these thoughts have to be, in some way, uh, repetitive. If it's just a babbling thought, I was initially saying, generally, you need to cut through. You basically need to simply cut through this and re 
capture your attention and bring it back to your declared exercise. If you don't have a declared exercise, declare an exercise. A declared exercise consists of an anchor. That's the place where you have decided to focus in the body. Anchor is physical. In the body to anchor your attention as the primary focus of that attention. And um, anchor also consists that you acknowledge when you're not with the anchor. In other words, pl- what I call plan B. Yeah? So if you're babbling, does uh, persist and you do not have such an anchor, declare such an anchor. If you have such an anchor and you notice it's babbling, bring your attention back. Now that is not the order or the suggestion to stop or to stomp out what is babbling or to uh, curb or curtail in anything. The idea is that you let that run on as it babbles, but you remove your attention from it. That's the difference. You're influencing the direction of your mind's attentional focus. You're not fiddling with the content. As soon as you fiddle with the content, the babbling will increase. Yeah. So what do you do? This is before I go into these five techniques is you remove your attention back to the by now clarified area of action. And you do that as many times as is necessary. I'm speaking of thousands of times, just to be clear. Yeah? Just to be discouraging in numbers. Meditation, like any other skill, is something that is practiced in contact hours. And it takes a long time till something that is not a natural skill. Meditation is not a natural skill. You don't learn it if you have nobody to teach you. Even mindfulness is not a natural skill. You have to learn this. You need people who help you with that, and you need people who model that for you. It's like empathy, which you don't learn on your own, and it's like speech you don't learn on your own. You need people who do that, and you need people who help you doing that. So, same for mindfulness. To learn that means you will have to put in some hours practicing this. People disagree on the number of hours you have to put in before something becomes, you know, before your skill becomes a mastery. (coughs) Many times. Many times. So be prepared. If you're serious about this, be prepared. Don't expect of your poor mind to, you know, run around for 30 years of its life, associate, get degrees, be good at verbalizing skills, and then suddenly from one day to the next be able to happily abide with one in-breath and one out-breath in a continuous fashion for days on end. This seems somewhat unrealistic. So be prepared that you have to fail at that. Much of meditation consists of failing at meditation if you want to be blunt. Yeah? Obviously we can't write it in our brochures. We write in our brochures about happiness. Vipassana makes you happy. and Compassion widens the heart. And, you, know, you come out here smiling with less wrinkles. So we, we have to work on the anti-aging aspect of meditation. I think it's not publicized enough. So we don't quite admit to the extent that this goes against the grain and uh, it only uh, can be learned by basically being bad at it. Yeah? We're, we're bad at it. So many people come away believing that because it sounds easy, 
watch your breath or feel your belly or feel the arising and seizing of your sensations connected to breathing or whatever brand you want to listen to. Um, this should work that easy. You know, obviously, this is not going to work that easy. We all know that. Uh, any any honest uh, meditator will admit that uh, it is in the nature of sati to wander. That's one of the big things about sati. It is capable of doing many things at the same time. Otherwise, we would never be able to rear a kid or drive a car or cook a meal. Yeah, if we couldn't do many different things with a panoramic peripheral type of awareness in which we can give several things at one time some degree of attention. You know, we would never get anything done. You know? So that's one of the kicks of mindfulness, that it is capable of holding one thing while not losing a few other things. It doesn't quite prioritize in the same way. You know? At the same time, <clears throat> we need to steady this a little bit. You know? If you want to steady this, um, I think I initially said something about layers. Yeah? One layer would be just it goes anywhere it wants. Uh, next layer is you have decided where it should stay and then it gets being pulled off from there. Yeah? You've chosen something you want to continue being aware of and it, you kind of get pulled off but you come back. Next layer would be something like you have chosen something you stay with it. There are distractions on the on the margins. Something is moving, you know, shifts, thoughts, nibbling. But you're basically staying with it. Yeah. And the next layer would be something like you have established now enough stability in your continuity of awareness that there is a spatial feeling of things being stable, and within that spatial quality of awareness, things arise and cease. And your awareness is no longer dependent on the individual thing that arises and ceases, but has enough inherent stability that it doesn't collapse with the thing when it ceases. Yeah? Don't look at me so puzzled, please. <laughs> We're doing this for days already. <laughs> please, none of these looks. Yeah. <laughs> Spatial awareness, stability and spatial awareness, allowing individual events to emerge, do their thing, change, disappear, and the awareness remains. Yeah. This is one of the things that is what we're doing, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate your compassionate nodding at this point. Yeah. So, one of the things that most perniciously stop us from doing this kind of thing is thought. Because thought has a strong appeal character. It does want something from us. It has a statement. Every thought wants something from us. It has a, a kind of sometimes hortative, sometimes demanding, sometimes threatening gesture. It says, you know, do this. Take me serious. Listen to me. I tell you the truth. This is important. Don't forget me. Think me through. You know? It does this kind of thing. Yeah. And the ch if we just, obedient as we are, kind of take this up, then we kind of take him serious, we listen to him, we follow through with him, we take him down, we follow down that line, we meet his brothers, you know. <laughs> yeah, this, we do much of this. 
and time passes, and obviously our attention dissipates. So, so contemplative traditions have always suggested you have to make a, a, a kind of baseline decision and say, I'm not going to talk to any of you guys. Yeah? I, I have office hours, and non, non, they are not on right now. Yeah? You come big, you come small, you come begging, you come screaming, you come challenging, you come demanding, you come reasonable, you come irrational. I'm not going to talk to you. So we make a decision and stay with one fascinating breath after the other while all these boring thoughts come and appeal. And we let them go. We have to let them go. As soon as we enter, they've won. You know, they take us, introduce us to their family, and then they kind of multiply in the process and go to all kinds of boring and fascinating places. And after a while, you hear the bell, and it's mealtime. Yeah. So, what to do? The Sutta tells us a range of strategies, the first of which, and the most elegant, is um, to not enter into debate with that thought. Yeah. The analogy the sutta gives, it is if somebody comes on the road and you close your eyes, yeah, so you don't acknowledge them. Yeah. Very simple image. Something comes and you just close your eyes. You say, you do not enter into de- debate, you do not enter into dialogue with this thought. You just wait till it's past. And the nice thing about impermanence is it's not just the nasty things that are in, it's it's not just the nice things that are impermanent it's also the un, not so nice things that are impermanent yeah not just the precious useful things but also the useless uh, distracting things are impermanent and chances are if we wait long enough it just is gone it's gone so the most elegant and the least uh, energetically sweat inducing way of dealing with discursive thought, nagging, repetitive thought, is simply let them pass by and not enter into dialogue with them. I think the image is very clear. Something comes and you close your eyes. You don't establish contact with it. It gets more arduous from now on, so as long as you can use this trick, use this trick, definitely. This is the most, the most easily available and the less uh, strenuous one. Just don't enter into debate and say, I stay with the breath, thank you very much. And wait, it passes. Yeah. Whenever it whistles, it doesn't hit. Yeah, That's what they used to say. Let it pass and go back to whatever your anchor is. The next technique is... You need to identify what that... When we're speaking of a nagging, repetitive thought, you don't do this with all thoughts. It's just the ones which really come back and come back and come back. So you need to investigate. You try to win with the energy of the thought that may be unwholesome, either greed or hatred, or maybe more likely... Uh, a wish or a slight aversion or dislike yeah, that would be still called greed or hatred in the big psychologies in the spectrum 
if you recognize the pattern, is you're trying to gain something healthy from what has an unhealthy energy. Yeah? So you're trying to turn the thought like a good judoka or an aikidoka into its opposite movement. Yeah? You, you take the energy from the thought and you try to gain a, a, a wholesome aspect. Yeah? How do you do that? In judo, it's easy. Yeah? If you're pushed, you pull. If you pulled, you push. Yeah? So um, somebody wants something from you, and instead of holding back and defending, you completely yield to the movement. In fact, you exaggerate, yeah? and they'll get thrown over. They'll lose balance. Very simple, very effective, if you've seen this. How do you do that mentally? There you have to make a distinction. If your thought is concerned with desire, uh, with wanting, with uh, uh, something that focuses on a quality of the attractive, then you need to gain something that uh, emphasizes the unattractive. If this person, if this is a person you feel attracted to, you may consider finding something unattractive in this person. Yeah. This is a time-honored exercise called asubha. You take up something that is not pretty, something that is not beautiful. And because the beauty that you feel attracted to is a perceptual quality. It's perception that makes things beautiful. You notice if you speak with animals about what they see or what you see, they do not have the same perception of what is beautiful. In fact, you can stay with human beings, just change it, copped off, go a few thousand kilometers away, and what they perceive to be beautiful and is maybe substantially different from what you perceive to be beautiful. I've been led to see some uh, really outlandish Buddha statues, you know, with neon light halos and uh, uh, plastic uh, embellishments. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I was led there and with great pride shown uh, the recent acquisition to a shrine room or so. And um, in the hope I would kind of resonate with the devotional feeling that clearly evoked in my host's uh, hearts. And, you know, I took took me some, some years of actors training to actually disguise the horror that is kind of attacked. It doesn't take much to find people who have very, very different tastes or have very, very different perceptions of what is tasty, of what is healthy, what is nutritious, what is beautiful, what is inspiring. Yeah. If you travel a little bit, you may find this is... Um, this is not as far away as you, as as, uh, as one could think. Yeah. People are highly, highly uh, different in their perceptions of what is, for example, beautiful or attractive. Now, if you find that your heart is leaning into thoughts around beautiful things that you feel attracted to and that evoke your desire, you may need to refocus your perceptions on something that is not beautiful. So human beings generally are beautiful at a certain distance and if you not just see certain things but if you screen out a lot of other things. You know, beauty in human beings is much a product of uh, careful editing uh, 
rather than just intrinsic, you know, unassailable beauty, timeless beauty. So sometimes it just takes looking a little closer and you find within the person who you find physically attractive something not so attractive. Maybe his smile stops a bit too abruptly or, you know, the way he parks his shoes or is really an, indica- an indication of, you know, this serene elevated being you've just perceived floating through the, the dining hall somehow takes on another look if you see how shoddily he parks his shoes or... You know, you, you, it will not take much fantasy to find things of um, uh, unattractive nature. Human beings are not really very profoundly attractive across the board. You know? it, takes, it, it generally takes some hormonal influence to find them attractive, and it takes a, a lot of careful not looking to find them consistently attractive. Yeah? That attraction has a lot to do with your wish and maybe your needs and your current state, and not with an objective external value. Yeah? Um, so the Asuba practice would uh, emphasize to focus on rather that beautiful, you know, blonde uh, hairdo uh, she's wearing. You just kind of look at one of the single blonde hairs that stays behind on her sitting cushion or so, and you feel that probably is a lot less attractive, yeah? So you just refocus your mind on something that was attractive for something that seems unattractive. That's easily done. Yeah. It goes a bit against the grain because there's something in us that keeps wanting to edit the world in ways we like. Yeah. We're highly biased in favor of that liking business. So Asuba practice encourages actively seeking out what is the opposite of what we're attracted to. Just looking more close often helps. That's enough, generally. Yeah. I have a five-fold magnifying mirror at home. Yeah. And when I kind of shave, sometimes I look in there, and what seems a smooth shave, you know, it feels quite okay, and I'm quite chuffed about the smooth shave. If I look at myself in a five-fold magnification, this is quite a horrific sight. It's, it's scraped, bits of skin are left, you know. That smooth shave to my fingertips, to my tactile sense of uh, smoothness, quite con- I'm quite content with that. When I actually look at five-fold magnification, it's disturbing, you know. Not just how much is left, how uneven my shave is, but actually how uneven my feeling is, you know, because in my hands this feels smooth. But if I, my eyes are still capable of, at least with fivefold magnification, to discern a lot of unevenness there. So even my, sen- my tactile sensory experience is falsified by that little exercise. So consider we have catchment. Um, you know, we have catch sort of hallmarks that we find attractive. You have this very beautiful idiom in English. You say, beauty is skin deep. Yeah, this is precisely what it is. Nobody ever kind of gets infatuated with somebody's kidney or spleen. Or, yeah? <laughs> or, or with her, you know, her exquisite renal function or something. You, you get attracted by hair, by skin, by, you know, by teeth. By movement, you get attracted by, you know, primary attractors and so forth. This is not very difficult. And yet, if you focus on something slightly, 
just slightly beside that, you will probably find something in there that is very sobering. Yeah. So that will be the case for desire for human beings, or attraction uh, that is followed by desire for human beings. Um, um, if you go for desire for things, then you'd have to contemplate how much these things cost, and just how expensive, how much you would have to work for this one, or, or you would consider how much maintenance it takes to keep up, or you would have to consider its impermanence, that it's rusting, how much taxes it costs, uh, how you would move that if you had to move it. Yeah, you, know. you would consider the difficulties you would incur by having, owning, uh, visiting, experiencing, eating this thing. Yeah? You would consider its disadvantages. There's a, con- a contemplation called the contemplation of the Adinava, of the the disadvantage of a thing, which is a very useful consideration in, in Buddhist practice. So you, you consciously look at something and say, okay, I'm feeling attracted to this. Now let's say, what speaks against this? Yeah? So you consciously take this position as an intellectual uh, counter, uh, po- uh, sort of a polar statement, and say, okay, yeah. one guy looks at this as a beautiful lawn, yeah, Ah, wonderful open space. We could put up a marquee there. We could have a little garden hut. We could, you know, play cricket. We could make it an open door meditator scene. You know, this is where we would place the mosquito nets. Yeah. And the next guy comes and looks at it and says, "Oh God, this takes so much upkeep. Look, we'd have to have a lawnmower for this. We'd have to have somebody hired for this. We'd have to put in so many hours. We'd have to run fundraising to get the lawnmower guy paid. You, you know, you look at this in from another point of view. And generally, this is minimizing your desire for the thought. It gets you another position. Now you can do that quite quick." You know the way I explain it seems complicated and convoluted, but once you learn this, you see, just say, okay, this is pulling me in. <laughs> what would speak for not being pulled into this one? Yeah. And you just kind of you tilt your head the other way around <laughs> and look at it from this side. Yeah, um, if it is. Sometimes it's just enough to contemplate the impermanence of something. Yeah. This dessert looks really great to me right now. I feel this is really... They, they prepared that fresh. This must be fresh. This can't be from yesterday. Yeah. And then you think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, this is all the telltale signs of being fresh. Is it fresh? Yeah, it is fresh. That's what she says. You know, that's exactly what I thought. No, I, I guess I have one of these. Maybe two, actually. Yeah. And then you contemplate, okay, how many have I had of those? Yeah. One last week and one previous week and, you know last year and previous years. So I've actually, all in all, I've at least had 25 of them. And they all had looked good. They were even, they tasted good. But actually, I still want more. You know, they haven't made me happy. Now this one here promises not just to taste good, it promises actually that it makes me happy. It promises, in fact, to make me content. But the last 25 haven't, you know. So why should this one? Yeah. So you, you learn to juxtapose your habituated position 
liking, followed by wanting, followed by engaging with that. How would I go about to get it? Yeah, and anticipating a gratification that is way beyond of what that poor thing can offer. Yeah, even if it is as fresh as you think it is, and as they say it is, the gratification expected is way beyond of what this can offer. We are so wildly outrageous in our hope for being gratified for things. We already have the experience that they don't gratify us for any length of time. Yeah, consider. Consider how many things you have enjoyed in your life. How many wonderful meals, how many great bottles, how much sex, how much holiday, how many exquisite outings, how many summits you have climbed, how many hours you've spent on the beach. You know, consider all that. And still you're not content. Yeah. So there's something grotesque in our expectation to be suddenly satiated by something we've done for the last 40 years. And we've liked it, we've enjoyed it, we've been locally gratified, but somehow we still expect this next one is going to do more than the ones the 40 years before have done. And there's something slightly disproportionate about that. Never felt this way? Yeah. So such contemplations help if the thought is, we're still back with the second technique, if the thought is concerned with aversion, um, if that aversion is against the thing, we may consider the material nature, the elemental nature of what we deal with. You know, this is consisting of earth, water, fire, air. You know? It may look ugly, it may even smell ugly, but basically this is just elements. There's nothing intrinsically impure about this. There's nothing intrinsically detrimental or toxic about it. It's just elements arranged in a tragic way, you know, kind of a rotten cabbage, tragic way kind of arrangement. So this may temper our aversion. If our aversion or our um, dislike is against a person, we may connect with the humanity in that person. Very much in the spirit of last night's exercise, you may consider that this person is trying to be happy and trying to avoid pain, as I am trying to be happy and trying to avoid pain. That this person, however unfortunate his or her expressions are right now, which evoke my uh, contempt or which evoke my aversion, that this person actually suffers. That he or she suffers. That he or she uh, has fears and sorrows and uh, anxieties and disappointments and has a lot of hardship. So you, you connect with the human bit in somebody and immediately that will make it more difficult for you to push this person out of your heart to say this is just something, this is an alien. Yeah? This is not even from this planet. I am sure this is not even a human being. Yeah? That's, when, you're somebody, when you hate somebody, that's what hatred does, isn't it? It's a, it's a deeply, it's a local little a psychotic number. Yeah? If you look what's happening when you hate something or when you're angry, you're, you're psychotic. Yeah? You have a local minimal little bout of psychosis. You distort it. Your perceptual apparatus is unreliable. Your capacity to hold relationship is completely lopsided. You reduce people of tremendous complexity to a couple of traits, a few 
coarse brush strokes with the crayon and they're ugly and caricatures of human beings. Yeah? If you're unfortunate, you get psychiatrized for that one. Yeah. If you go public on this one, people give you numbers for that one. Yeah. If you insist on this position, then you'll end up institutionalized. Yeah. Now, when we are angry, when I'm angry, this is what I do. You know, if I look at what's happening in anger, it's highly unreal. I have lost capacity to meet a human being in its complexity. I reduce it to its most detestable feature, which strikes me uh, right now, and I, my perception is fixated on that one feature. I pretend it has always been that way. Yeah? I pretend this is its true nature. Yeah? If it's really bad, I say, it has no other purpose than being that way and doing this to me. Yeah? Completely lopsided. You know, this po- poor being is reduced in its whole existence to playing a role in my little hate number. Yeah? Utterly grotesque. Anybody who is instrumentalized to be somebody else's anger object is doing exactly that. He's being completely instrumentalized. You reduce that person to one job on earth, namely to be the object and focus of your hatred right now. So this can't be normal because this human being has a history. It has a life. It has many facets like I have. It has a a range of ways in which it manifests. Even the most despicable character has, has a soft day sometimes or does a kind thing occasionally, even against his will or against her will. So, you know, I know that. And yet, in the moment of anger, all this is gone. Now, you can't seriously think this is normal. You can't seriously think of yourself as being healthy in that moment or accurate or fair or accomplice mentis for that matter. Yeah. So... The countermeasure is very clearly connecting with the vulnerability of this being, acknowledging shared humanity, acknowledging that this being is in fact very similar to you, that it is vulnerable, that it seeks affirmation and love and comfort, it seeks safety, it seeks fulfillment, that it needs um, all these things, and that it gets frustrated in the process, that it experiences tremendous inattention, like I do. And once I have somebody on that level, I can't really completely, um, you know, uh, declare them beyond redemption. Yeah? I can't do that anymore. I have acknowledged them as human beings. And as human beings, they deserve at least a, a rudimentary respect, rudimentary kindness thing. I acknowledge you are sensitive. I acknowledge that although your expression right now seems unfortunate, I acknowledge I don't completely discard you from humanity. And once you have them as human beings, you somehow, they seem less hateful. You can think of yourself in this situation. You can think of yourself as having blundered or having been unfortunate in the way he or she is right now and something in you mellows 
something in your mind mellows and loses the firmness of your hate position where your other human being becomes an alien, becomes a monster, becomes dehumanized. So this is what you do. The scriptures in other places tell us that what helps us overcome hatred and anger is metta, is loving kindness. Um, That is only true with certain reservations. As an intervention technique, metta doesn't work when we're already angry. Um, Metta is a prophylacticum. It prevents the mind from going angry easily. Um, It prevents, if we're locally angry or uh, annoyed, it prevents that this anger or annoyance can take root in the mind when the mind has practiced metta. And uh, when it has arisen, it makes it subside, that the arisen anger subsides more quickly um, when we have practiced metta. However, as an intervention technique, when the mind is already averse, we can't really convince it to become uh, loving. Yeah? So uh, this is basically the attempt to, you know, you can, obviously you can... You can put icing on a, on a cow pad, but it stays a cow pad, you know. It's a cow pad with a sweet surface, but basically it's a cow pad, yeah. So you can't really convince your heart to suddenly become loving when it actually is annoyed or aversive or angry. But if you use metta as a, as a kind of maintenance exercise, as a practice where you often dwell, then your heart is very less likely to fall into anger or aversion. It means you have more space before this occurs. And if it does occur, that anger cannot stay for a very long time. So metta is indeed a remedy against anger, but not as an intervention strategy. It is a prophylacticum or a uh, sort of a long-term quality. It is definitely the one the Buddha recommends. If you need, in a moment of, in a bout of, uh, annoyance, if you need to connect with that other human being, I would suggest karuna, so compassion, acknowledging the vulnerability and the pain in another being's life is more bonding, more immediately bonding. And that also works when you happen to be annoyed for a moment. So, we have a couple of strategies. Huh? Taking the thought's energy and turning it into its opposite. When it's greedy, you turn it so that that which evokes the greed, namely the attractiveness, is changed into something unattractiveness, which gives rise to sobriety. When it deals, when it's about people, obviously asuba, the seeking out of the active seeking out of something unattractive, is the case. When it's your greed is directed to things or um, possessions or um, um, status, then you look at the impermanence, you look at the disadvantage, you look at the elemental nature of something. When it is aversion, uh, then it's karuna is the exercise, trying to find compassion. The third of the strategies against thought is, that's a very interesting one. It says, um, the, the wording is, let me recall, the wording is that you... Clarify to yourself that that thought, when you follow that thought, that this is contrary to your better knowledge, that this is contrary to your values, 
that it is contrary to what you know to make you happy and what you make content. So you, you acknowledge that something has taken hold of you or hold of your attention and moves in your mind that if you join this, this is, will take you someplace where you know is not healthy. Yeah? In fact, it is against your better knowledge of what's taking place. The image is quite powerful. The suttas speak from uh, as if a young man or a young woman going to a festivity wanted to, uh, to beautify themselves and instead of uh, taking garlands and uh, perfumes, they would take the dead body of a snake or of a dog and dr- dress it around their neck. Yeah? So in other words, you want to appear beautiful, you want to appear pretty, because you go to some place where you meet other beautiful and pretty people and you want to please. And in trying to do so, you would do something that is loathsome, that is kind of make you ugly and makes you unattractive, putting a dead animal around your neck. Um, So knowing this thought to be unwholesome, knowing this thought to take you someplace where you are not happy, where you're not content and where you're not have a chance to gain insight, knowing all this, you do not follow that thought. You make yourself clear that you know more about that thought. You know where it's going to take you. You know that this is contrary. You do not go into a hate fantasy. You do not allow this fantasy uh, of desire to go into uh, a fully-fledged mode. This is an interesting thought, yeah. It's not passively letting it arise and wait till it subsides. It actively says, I take up a stance. I say, no, I'm not going to go along with you. I don't consent with this. This has taken place, but I do not agree with this. Yeah? Because it is against everything I want to practice. I want to practice peacefulness, and this is an angry thought. I'm not going to feed this. I'm not going to fill in the details. I'm not going to fuel the story. I know this kind of mind is not resolving the issue. It is pretends, pretends to be about. It's not going to make me feel better and it's not going to help the other person. So this is an, imp- this is an important active stance. You withhold consent. You don't collude. You don't give your energy to that. It's a powerful stance an active stance. So, that was strategy three. Strategy four is um, also very interesting. It, is, it, sa- it says you are trying to draw or you, to bring your attention not to the thought, but to the impulse that moves the thought. Yeah? And you're trying to still that impulse. So, in other words... It is, if, it is as if you try to turn the fuel that that thought lives off to turn that off. Yeah? Um, the analogy the suttas uses, um, it is as if a man who was running thinks, oh, I am running. How if I was running more slowly? And he ran more slowly. And then he would say, oh, I'm still running. How if I was walking? And he said, oh, okay, I can walk. And then he would walk and he said, well, I'm still moving. Maybe I could stand still. And then he would stand still. So the pattern is clear. I am actually 
influencing the impulse that moves my thought. I'm trying to, the sutta speak of quelling the sankara behind the thought, quelling of the formation, the volitional formation that propels the thought. Um, and in many ways, if you wanted to do that in a psychological way, you would have to acknowledge your own influence in that thought taking place. You would acknowledge your own energy in there. Yeah? Something in you is feeding that thought. If that thought takes place, something in you is feeding that thought. If you can have that thought take place, you can also have that thought take place less intensely or more quietly or something like that. There's a number of strategies which are quite useful. I, I find it useful if sometimes to acknowledge my own part in the stuff I think about rather than just pretend to be a victim you know, of my thoughts. I don't have anything to do. I'm just a screen on which they all happen. Yeah? Don't blame me if it is passionate. Don't blame me if it is angry. Don't blame me if it is you know, uh, an attempt to distract me. It's just, I'm just a victim of my thoughts. Unfortunately, I can't control them. I have no influence them. Whistle, whistle, whistle. Yeah? Uh, instead of doing that, actually stating very clearly, say, well, if I can do this, I can also not do this. Yeah? I have a chance. Maybe I don't have a chance to stop it immediately, but let's see. Can I, can I think that so- thought more slowly? Yeah. Just kind of go, go about it playfully. Can I, can I recite that? Yeah. And you, make, you, you, you do something funny. You take the same thought and you just say it with a funny voice. You, in other words, you, you reclaim some, some impact some power over that thing. Yeah? And by having some influence, even if, you, if it's only partial, you can make it grotesque, or you can exaggerate it, or you can... You, you have an influence on it. As soon as you have an influence, you're not a victim anymore. As soon as you have an influence, you have some power. And from then on, you can either let it subside, or you can... Um, they can continue that game until it becomes it loses its credibility. Yeah. So I sometimes exaggerate. So I have a little bit of a sort of a mumbly thought, and then I say, they say, "Oh, kind of wrong type of jam on the breakfast table." And I say, "Okay, this cannot continue that way. You know, this is the end. Yeah, yeah. Wrong jam on the breakfast. <laughs> that life is not worth living. Yeah, yeah something like that." And you, you realize you can't take that serious anymore. So you kind of you play with this in some way. And uh, whatever works for you. Maybe you can, you know, hoot or, or kind of mock the thought. Or you somehow take its pathos away by influencing it, by exaggerating it, or by, um, you know, doing a child's voice number on it or something like that. Whatever works for you. But you stop being the kind of passive, victimized recipient of a, 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 a thought that keeps repeating itself in your mind, and you're just kind of waiting there till it sort of subsides. If you try to do something about it, chances are you will have a way of influencing this, and you regain some form of power. You may not be able to stop it, but you may be able to distance it, you may be able to make it ri- ridiculous, you may... You may actually hear yourself speaking it and suddenly hear how 
unbelievable that thought is, or how petty, or how childish, or how uh, anxious. Yeah? And subtly, you regain some power over this. You stop being the victim of a pattern that apparently you can't do anything about. And our man gradually comes to a standstill. Yeah? A man who was running, now walking, and finally is capable of standing still. The last of the remedies is also the, the least uh, desirable to be applied. Uh, it's basically called suppression. The, um, the texts are fairly blunt about it. They say, um, um, with teeth set against teeth, uh, lips pressed and tongue uh, uh, pressed against the palate, you crush mind with mind. Yeah? The analogy says, as if a strong man would take a weak man by his shoulders and press him down to the ground and pin him hard and fast. Yeah? This is uh, how you suppress a thought. Now, this may sound psychologically unsavory, but um, actually... I'm grateful if you're applying this technique, if you have impulses, like hitting your neighbor or so, or um, screaming out loud. Or so. I'm very grateful if you apply this technique. I, 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 I am quite conscious that the safety of our situation here, and in fact any development, de- development of civilization, hinges on members of that aspiring civilization to be willing to suppress destructive impulses of that nature. Obviously, this is not a, this is a very um, powerful means. It takes a lot of energy, and it is psychologically not without risk to do that kind of thing, because any act of suppression takes a tremendous effort, and it means uh, something will need to be addressed at some point later, uh, where something of that nature was suppressed. So. The suppression of uh, destructive impulses is, I think, crucial, and I I trust you understand that this is a necessary uh, last-ditch resort for powerful stuff coming up. Um, I gather if you sit long enough with your lives and your heart, you will meet powerful stuff coming up. If it hasn't already, Uh, it has in my life, and it was maybe it may may be necessary to uh, for you to be doing this somewhere else you know, to take yourself out of a situation in which you can no longer safeguard your capacity to suppress such impulses you know, uh, for the avoidance of collateral damage in the meditation room <laughs> you know, whatever you think is, is at risk so there may be moments in your life that you need to uh, go and roll in the dirt or um, kick a tree or um, do, do such things. You know, I have certainly done my fair share of kicking trees and rolled in the dirt uh, in the process of meeting some of the movements in my own heart. And I would think it is a sign of maturity and uh, compassion to do that in a way that doesn't endanger other meditators, that doesn't endanger other human beings, basically. You know? If you're of a less passionate nature, then uh, you'll be... Congratulated! I'm sure your path will have challenges as well. Uh, but basically, this is what this last method is about. You know? If it's big, 
And if it's destructive and if it's violent, also self-destructive, let's just be clear about this, it may be necessary that I suppress an impulse. Yeah? Now, there's a difference between repression and suppression, if I am conscious in this, and a, a very important difference. Suppressing something means you dig, you know, you cover something, and then you place a marker and say, you know, something has been uh, covered there, something has been buried there, and I will need to go back there and look what that is. Sooner or later, when I have, uh, you know, girded my loins a little better, or when I have more resources, I need to go back there and look what lies buried there where that marker is, where the little flagpole stands. Repression is doing uh, the suppression act, but without the flag. The pretense then is nothing has happened. Everything is calm here. So no marker, and thus no possibility to go back and acknowledge and look at more deeply. These are two different, um, seemingly similar, but quite different in effect, uh, ways of dealing with such say, destructive impulses. And it is good to make this distinction. So you, if you re- suppress things, you please do not cover your tracks. Yeah? Please do not pretend it hasn't happened. Uh, it is important that you do acknowledge that you have suppressed something uh, and that you will be going back there at some point when, yeah, in the, in the ripeness of time when you have few more tricks under your belt or whether you have a better uh, context in which to look that, look that up or whether you have help or whether you have just more skill in handling powerful stuff. Yeah? So these are distinctions I would like you to make if you apply this fifth technique. So, can I repeat quickly? First technique, just let it pass. Don't engage with it. Yeah? It's the kind of... Um, Parliaments, I don't know what it is called in this country here, parliaments have kind of agreements whether they enter into a debate about something, whether this agenda point is even worth for the congregation to kind of engage with it. That first point would mean you don't enter into debate. Parliament decides this is not even worth discussing. We're not even going to talk about this. Thank you very much. Next. (laughs) So the second technique would be to take the thought's energy, uh, and particularly if that thought is discernibly greedy or uh, desirous, if it is discernibly angry, if it is discernibly concerned with other people or with things, you take out its energy and find something in that thing that is either unattractive, if it is a thing that you feel attracted to, uh, something in that person that is unattractive, if it is a person you feel attracted to or desirous of, um, if you find uh, aversion against the person, you find something that makes your heart more soft and compassionate for the, the difficulty of this person's life or the pain this person experiences or the fear he or she may have. You know. If your thought starts to dwell a little too much on the pain of their lives, you may have lost your plot. This may, have just, this may, this may just be... Uh, about of 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 spite, yeah, rather than compassion. So be be a little careful around thinking about other people's suffering. If you start to enjoy that too much, it's probably not compassion. 
Yeah. And the third strategy is to acknowledge that what is taking place in your mind is against your better knowledge, it is against your values, and is against what you know to be wholesome. Yeah? And you make yourself that clear, and you do not give that thought your consent. You do not give that thought your energy. You do not agree going along with that thought, playing itself out. Yeah? The fourth strategy is to acknowledge that you have some power and you're trying to influence that thought in some way that takes its credibility away. Play with it. Exaggerate, imitate, uh, go about it in a stentorian kind of inner voice. Do something about it. Even if you can't stop it immediately, you will be able to influence it. And when you can influence it, you know you're not helpless. You know you have a say. And you know you have some power in this. The fourth one is suppression. I have just spoken of. It's basically suppressing an impulse that is deemed to be dangerous to yourself or to other people or that you find is against all of your values and your morals. Okay. Good. Let me stop here. Um, Take a minute or two of silence and then we recite.
Good. I'd like uh, us to bring up some good thoughts for uh, our friend Mary, who's going to go into surgery tomorrow for a fairly sizable treatment, and who our friend Libby has taught us would benefit from some good thoughts. So maybe you can direct your hearts to think of what we chant here and bring up somebody who is in need and some... Some good energy would benefit her, preparing her body for a major surgery tomorrow. Mita sagati najita sai kamdi sang barita vavi haraditata tutti amdata tatti amdata jatu tangiti wadamado yang zabdi sabatataya sabawantang lokang meta sagate najeta savipuli namahagate na apama na viri na bayapa jena parita vavi harati karuna sahagate na jeta saekam parita vavi harari tata tuti ang tata tati ang tata jatu Taya sabawantang lokang karuna sahagate na jeta savipule na maa na apamane Kamdi sang parita vavi harati tata tutti ang tata tati ang tata jatu tang iti uadamado yang sabadi sabatataya sabawantang lokang mudita sagate najeta savipule namaka Na apamane na vire na bayapa jena parita vavi arati 
ಸಾಬಾಂ If you have the energy to continue practicing please do so and we we'll meet tomorrow morning Thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.